Pod Only Knows is a Cage Club podcast. For other smart podcasts on culture, pop, and otherwise, go to cageclub.me. You can contact us via email at pok at cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. And you can find me at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. And you can find the show on Twitter at PodOnlyKnowsPod. The show is written and produced by us. Welcome to Pod Only Knows. How's it going, John? <laughs> it's 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 going, Kelly. How's it going with you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm excited about our episode today because yeah, I have my friend Megan on and we'll talk to her a little bit in a minute. Um, but I thought first you could tell us what your good news is for this. What's my good news? Uh, so my good news is so I um, living in Massachusetts, having grown up in New England, uh, you know, I, I'm not like. I'm not the, I don't do fan duel. I don't do fantasy sports. I'm not like the sports guy. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I do love baseball. I've always loved baseball. I have, I have stories about that. We can probably tell at some point later in the podcast, but it is, uh, it is sort of a, a sports nirvana time uh, here in, in Massachusetts, uh, in the Boston area. And it's kind of that period of the year where like, you realize how how spoiled you are to be a uh, a Boston a Boston sports fan, um, and the Premier League is is ending this month as well. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening there. So like May, I think is like my favorite my favorite sports month uh, because of all that, and and the weather's getting nicer and like all that sort of thing. So um, it's just one of those nice sort of communal cultural bonding things that in lieu of being a religious person. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, uh, you can kind of have, and there's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of religiosity uh, surrounding baseball, especially. So um, Fenway is famously sometimes referred to as the cathedral of baseball. Uh, so yeah, we should do it. We'll do an episode about sports and religion at some, or baseball and religion at some point, because that's, uh, we can do it, and I will learn a lot because mm-hmm. I am not a sports ball person, <laughs> and that's okay. I can hang with it; it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. you know, um, I know a little bit about baseball, um, yeah. but not a lot. Like yeah. my my dad tried, bless him, because he, he tried in to high teach school. you or tried to play. You. Okay, tried, gotcha. Oh no, he didn't try to play me. No, yeah. no, okay. no. I was not okay. a sports kid. Okay. Like everyone knew there was okay. no attempt. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, he, he tried because he played in high school. And so it was one of those things where, like, he tried to make me interested. And yeah, yeah. He tried to make me interested in football. And that took a little bit better, but not a lot. So mm-hmm. um, bless him. It was an attempt, but it just didn't. <sighs> didn't pan to be, out to be so. clear like i i also don't play like i do i do coach soccer um but i don't i don't i played a little bit uh growing up and and a little bit in college for like fun as well uh but yeah baseball has always been a spectator sport that i have loved i played mm-hmm. little league until i was like terrified of getting hit by a pitch yep 
Uh, and th- at that point, I'm like, no, I can't. I can't. Like, the, the anxiety is too high. <laughs> it's too much. My threshold for pain is non-existent. I am incredibly injury prone. Like you and I, another thing we have in common is that we like injure ourselves yep. with dumbest things. That's just true. Um, yep. Which is like why I don't ski because I'm like, I'm not going to fall down a mountain on purpose. Like no, that's insane. No. Um, um, yeah. Which makes me no. a bad New Englander, but yeah. Uh, I have multiple people that will not allow me to do any sport that has extreme <laughs> in the title. <laughs> Well, there's a version of it that's extreme. Yeah, like, yeah. There's no extreme baseball, but, like, when someone's throwing something at you at 95 miles an hour, like, mm -mm. that's extreme. Yep. No, it's not... It's not going to happen. It's yeah. not going to happen at all. I, I do like the good, the, the the old like you know drunken game of softball. Like that's that's a fun way to <laughs> to, to play the sport. I um I, I filled in years ago. One of my friends worked at a law firm, and they had like their own softball team, and they needed someone to like someone couldn't make the t- the game or whatever. So, um, I I played with them, and it was a lot of fun. And the other team, like, <laughs> they were losing so badly uh by like the fifth inning that they were literally just like standing in the field with their gloves like drinking beers and cigarettes like (laughs) they were over it they were over it but like that's how baseball should be played if you're gonna like play as a non-professional as far as i'm concerned um i was a mean flag football player Oh yeah, girls in college. Like I was a heck of a defense player. Yeah, because I had. I mean, I would pull some flags. Like it was Mm -hmm. incredible. Like I loved that. Um, I went for some quarterbacks. Like that was amazing. But like that's like the end of my skill level. Like it just. I played that and it was fun. But um, I I could have been a highly paid star athlete had capture the flag ever made it as a major sport. (laughs) Um, one of my friends lived in New York City. She used to put together like once every few months, like forty person or like fifty person capture the flag games in Central Park. Uh huh. That would like go from like end to end of the, like they were epic, right? It's amazing. <laughs> they would, take, they would yeah. take all day, and they were. It was. It was. It was awesome. Uh, and like. Yeah, I got some good strategies when it comes to capture. And I get very competitive with capture the flag. Uh, <laughs> You know, I could have, but yeah, the world's not ready for, for, who knew that not only is this a Leo podcast, but this is also a flag based sports podcast. We are are big flag based sports people, but unfortunately, the country is not. (laughs) The country is not ready for us. Not ready for us. We were born too early. (laughs) We were. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, what's, what's, what's your good news? Oh, my good news is that, um, we are pool ready here in Florida. So it is like, Summer, especially summertime, we are pool Mm -hmm. ready. We can be in the sunshine with lots of sunscreen. And we are now in that thing. So one of the only good things about Florida (laughs) Uh is that summer comes early and you can swim and it's glorious. Um, The politics are terrible. We have no rights, but at Mm -hmm. least we have summer, I guess. Like that's pretty, that's a really bleak take on uh, my state, but that's something that we at least have going for us. So it's nice and um, we'll do that. So I've been enjoying the sunshine <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I can enjoy here. <laughs> well, it's right there in the license plate, right? The sunshine, is right state? The sunshine state. Yes. Because mm-hmm. they can't say we erode human rights also on the license plate. Doesn't right? fit. It doesn't yeah. fit there. It's not it as, won't work. It's not as, it's not as catchy. It is not as catchy. <laughs> 
yeah. for sure. Freedom for sure. in scare quotes. <laughs> Freedom in scare quotes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's what I want on my license plate. You know, a few years ago, they changed it where you could also have in God we trust on the license plate or instead of your county. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and both my partner and I were like, just put county on there. We're like, we can't, we can't just, yeah, you know, just yeah. no, please no. Um, mm-hmm. Which surprises the county clerk when you are so vehemently against the phrase that everyone in Florida works so hard to have on the license plate. So mm-hmm. you know, anyway, yep. <laughs> yeah. So my good news took a turn there. I'm sorry. Like, it always does. <laughs> yeah. We meander with these good news. I feel, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You know, flag based sports. Flag based sports. sports. That's our good news. More, more of that, please. Yeah, more the of world. that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Who's our guest today, Kelly? So our guest today is Dr. Megan Goodwin, who is the co-host of the podcast Keeping It 101, a Killjoy's introduction to religious studies. Uh, She's also the author of Abusing Religion, Literary Persecution, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religions. And she's the co-author of the forthcoming um, religion is not done with you from Beacon, forthcoming in fall 2004, with Elise Morgenstein first. So 2024, very, 2024. 2024. I do that all the time too. I always just go straight to the zero. Uh, did I say 2004? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, no, <laughs> no. We were all too young then, too I young, know. and I know. not. Oh yeah. man, yeah. yeah, 2024. My bad. So, um, yeah, but I'm very excited to have Megan on today because she's going to talk to us about religion and religious studies, but she's also going to talk about religion and public scholarship. Great. Let's talk to Megan. So um, I am super excited today because we have. Um, I should say full disclosure. One of my friends, hey. Megan Goodwin, here with us today. So if we get silly, that's what's happening here. Um, just, I don't know what you're like, talking about. Just have to let this be known. Um, so it's not like, how are Kelly and Megan acting this way? We don't know. Um, <laughs> there are about. reasons. These are doctors. <laughs> These what doctors, is I mean, yeah. doctors of religion, yes, um, <laughs> who act this way. Kind um, of. But I'm so excited that you're here so we can talk about religion and public scholarship. And I thought to kind of get us into this conversation, I would get you to tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in religious studies and then also how you situate yourself in religious studies. Mm. So two-part question go as deep as you want here. Um, but I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to hear about a little of your journey, but also how you feel like you're in it now. I came to be in religious studies because I was raised by intensely religious people. Uh, and I am neurodivergent. So when something interests me, it interests me a whole really lot, often to the exclusion of basic bodily needs. So uh, I come from a long line of Pennsylvania Catholics, uh, Philadelphia Catholics specifically. They are very intense about their relationship with Catholicism and their bone deep conviction that this is the correct slash only way to be in the world. Um, 
my mom's side of the family particularly kind of branched off from the German Irish Catholicism into a bunch of different directions. So like my mom's older sister was a sister of mercy. One of her brothers became an American Baptist. One of the sisters joined the Southern Baptist uh, Conference. Uh, and then another one is kind of a free range apocalyptic evangelical. Um, oh, wow. okay. right. Yeah. So A of all, but B, being raised by Catholics, I didn't realize that there was any kind of non-Catholic Christianity. So all of these conversations are happening while I am growing up and paying very close attention because I'm finding all of this fascinating. So not realizing that like the Satan is alive and well on planet Earth apocalypticism, like tracts that I am truly finding in the bathroom of my aunt's house were not part of just Christianity. Like it's all right. just Christianity, right? So I did a right. lot of confusing of my uh, Catholic school teachers by asking exactly <laughs> when Satan would be back and what kind of preparations we were taking. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they'd all get together and like play cards, which wasn't allowed for at least three of them. It was, it was nutty. Uh, and then I did 13 years of Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th. Um, and then realized that Catholicism was no longer for me, but that religion was definitely something that I was super interested in. But I didn't imagine that that was a thing that one made a career out of. Yeah. Still, still not sure it is. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. womp, womp. Uh, so I had majored in print journalism. Um, and I learned a lot about public communication and also that I did not want to work for a newspaper or media organization. Mm-hmm. So I wound up sitting in on such a nerd seven uh religious studies classes my senior year of college none of which were for credit because i had used my credits up on other stuff so i just was crashing conversations about like the problem of good and evil uh or <laughs> there was one a- does yeah like yeah. you do for for fun because I'm a mm. dork. So mm-hmm. yeah, there was the the Taoism class I sat in on. I got to do an African diasporic religions class with one of the biggest names actually in ADR. That was amazing. Uh, that just just was super interesting and also hard to explain when I was applying for master's programs. That like, no, I don't actually have any of these credits, but I promise I'm not coming in <laughs> out of nowhere. Uh, and then I had sort of imagined myself doing some sort of project along religion, gender, and sexuality, particularly around uh, witches and witchcraft, because that's Mm. where I live religiously and and also just in terms of the narratives that I find compelling. Uh, And I got to UNC and my advisor was like, guess what? There are no jobs for people who work on witches or transgender neo-shamans, which was my second master's project. But Again, the joke is on him because there are no jobs, period. Womp, womp. Um, but it, the, the circumstances of UNC led me to ask a bunch of questions I probably would have asked anyway, but in areas and spaces that I don't think I would have thought to explore mm. on my own. So UNC at the time had some of the best uh, Islamic studies scholars in the world hanging out there. So I started thinking a lot about what... Islam has in common uh, with other minoritized religions in the U.S., up to and including witchcraft. Um, this is not to say that Islam and witchcraft are the same. Please let's clarify that. But oh, no? The, no, 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 just, <laughs> I just finished my one and inshallah only year as the Islamic studies scholar in residence at any college ever. And I, I, it turns out you just you can't tell jokes about it because nobody knows anything about Islam unless they're Muslim. So, Very true. 
Very true. Yeah. So yeah. let me clarify yeah. again that no, those are different religions. Uh, but the terms upon which minority religions are minoritized in the U.S. are quite similar, regardless kind of the content. So that is how I wound up uh, in abusing religion. In terms of where I'm situated now, oh, golly, who's to say? Uh, I ask a lot of questions about who gets protected by systems and who gets left outside that protection. I think mm-hmm. a lot about what bodies have to do with uh, mm-hmm who is protected and who isn't. So all of my work is wrapped up in race and gender and sexuality. Increasingly, I am thinking about ability and the way that frameworks that grew out of and still very much draw from and reinforce specific kinds of white, able-bodied, cishet, Christian ways of being in the world. Yeah. Do in practice, particularly on and about the bodies of folks outside that very narrow and narrowing framework. So the short version is, is I do what race, religion, and American politics, uh, preferably since say 1979 or so. <laughs> I really like to get like into that, it before that. I like that you had to date it, where you're yeah. like just just so uh-huh. we're clear. Nothing before 1979. Yeah, like, I will talk no. about 1965 if you really make me, but I like I should prefer not what, to. What happened in 1979 specifically? Oh, 79 was the Iranian Revolution, so it shifts the way that Islam okay. gets racialized in the U.S. But I actually gotcha. I have to back it up a minute now because my next book is, uh, as you know, Kelsworth on cults, and I am looking at the uh, mass murder in Guyana of oh, members uh-huh. of the People's Temple. So that's 1978. So I will go back one full okay. year. One, one, one whole more year. year. One whole year. Yeah. I was I was gonna let listeners know that my name is not actually Kelsworth. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but Megan insists that my name would be better if it were actually Kelsworth. And I think I, think I kind of agree. Like I feel Kelsworth like it's a better name. Baker. I think that's correct. Yeah. If no, you were born in name. Connecticut in like the nineteen 19- Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like that I know, but my parents went with Kelly. I mean, come on. I was hoping you weren't going to say because 1979 was the year that I was born and that nothing existed <laughs> before that because that'd be really creepy. Um, <laughs> uh, I just had a little Truman Show moment there, and I was like, "Wait, and that's was there no reality before the year of my birth?" So speaking of how old people are, and I'm not going to ask you, Megan, but forty-five. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I uh, okay. One, so one Jonestown massacre old. Okay, perfect. So we are all within a couple of years of each other. Then, um, so when you were doing religion classes, that is around the time of like nine eleven, right? And um, oh no, maybe... I had graduated by then. Thank you, though. But like, yeah, <laughs> right. But like a couple of years before, yeah, and then right. So it's it's, it's kind school. of hovering sure, sure, around sure. that. Um, and because I, I I became a religious studies major before 9-11 as well. And I remember the transition of like everybody being like, why on earth would you ever do that? Don't you not want to starve? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously in it for the money. Oh, yeah. Uh, as we all and, are, I think. And educated adults in the late 90s saying like religion is not going to exist in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So why would you why would you bother? Yeah. And then 9-11 happens. And that's my senior year of college. And suddenly there's a newfound shift in the interest in religious studies. And I don't I don't know that we've really caught up to that yet. Mm. So like. I, I wonder over the last couple of decades since like we've all been working and adults or whatever, um, what you think about like 
the public appetite for learning more and mm. a kind of objective way about religion and like how how we're doing at kind of addressing that need right yeah I mean, I will say that my experience is shaped by context. So I did school in Boston, and Boston was never over religion. So uh, I, I didn't, I didn't have that like meh, whatever. We're gonna get over it. But having graduated, you know, six months both before nine eleven and right around when the Boston Spotlight series on clergy sex abuse broke uh, in Boston, uh, yeah, not not facing the same questions about like. Who still cares about religion, but absolutely still dealing with, and I'm using this word without judgment, public ignorance around religion um, is something that I have been yelling about for a long time. Uh, yeah. I know that I am absolutely not alone there, definitely standing on the the shoulders of some folks who were forced into the public spotlight, whether they liked it or not, in the in the wake of 9-11. So I'm thinking of, you know, Omid Safi, I'm thinking of Kisha Ali and all of the folks that did that really important work to help the public realize how much they did not know about Islam uh, and why that mattered in terms of public policy and uh, foreign intervention. Um, so I have, I think for the better part of my life, been trying to help folks think more carefully and more clearly about religion, but it's only in the last, oh, uh, seven-ish years ago, call it like November 2016, that I think I had a clear sense of the urgency of the work. Um, huh. Most, why. yeah, I can. You know, some stuff happened. <laughs> I was teaching teaching a race, religion, and politics class in Syracuse, which is among the the most segregated cities in the world. It's also the most chemically polluted <clears throat> waterway in the U.S. Um, oh, fun. Yeah. That's a fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the local native folks are doing amazing advocacy around both river yeah. cleanup and making sure that people aren't fishing out of it. Um, but it was one of those things of like my graduate training had very much been along the sowing seeds. People will get there when they get there. And that had been my approach. And then I just, yeah, came out of that semester feeling like I had been played and that we don't have the kind of time that I was led to believe that we have. Um, yeah. And feeling like I wanted to be doing more direct communication with the public and more urgent communication with the public. Yeah. And then flailing a little bit on how to do that because I have this BS in print journalism, but I don't have clips because I spent the last 20 years doing school stuff. Uh, so that was when I started moving into public communication around religion. Um, I think the, the place that I am now, and we can talk about this more if you want, but the short version is it's not just that I think people need to know more about religion. They do. Uh, it shapes the world around us in ways that are increasingly evident and also ways that remain kind of pernicious and, and hidden. Um, but my, my real focus now is not just thinking, why don't people know about religion? Like, it's not because they're not curious. As, as you're pointing out, like, there is a real public hunger for religious literacy. It's who wins when we're taught that religion doesn't matter or that it's private or that it right. is low stakes uh, or that we're over it, right? And yeah. obviously yeah. the answer is the people who are winning are the people whose religion are is winning, is shaping our government, is shaping our policies, is shaping our communities, right. is targeting uh, trans kids and <laughs> while leaders of uh, political and religious communities are 
harming children. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, who, who wins when we're hysterical about drag queens, but not thinking critically about religion? Uh, It is the dudes who keep making the laws and regulating the bodies. And I took that personally. Well, and I think your point too about the way that we're trained sometimes that people will get there when they get there. Mm-hmm. You know, this this idea, I mean, because I had some of that training too, right? That I was in a program that was a little bit nervous about us being public speakers, mm-hmm. right? Like I can remember working on um, a blog back when those were things, right? On religion and <laughs> They're American coming history. Back, man. They're coming They're coming back. back. I know, but I can remember working on a blog and having people be like, you work on this weblog thing. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> right. Um, and An they're like, 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 why, why would you do this? Like, why would you talk to a public? Why would you try to communicate in some kind of way? Because they just kind of assumed that you would put scholarship out there and mm-hmm. maybe the truth would rise to the top, right? And someone would like come <laughs> and figure this out. Sure. I mean, which is a really sure. sweet, like, yeah. provincial pragmatic, you know, kind of like idea that, that is just, it's kind of cute. Right. Um, but I think that a big uh, fat man just delivers presents and candy. Yeah. But the urgency piece that you mentioned, I think is part of the reason I got into public scholarship too. Right. Is that it was a thing for me where I was like, things are going on that, I can comment on that I have expertise on and it feels like I have an ethical imperative Mm -hmm. to speak out on this and to do something. Um, And that kind of question of like how to do that similar to you is like how do I figure out how to make an audience, right? Right. Or how to talk to an audience um, and how to think through this. And I think that, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you're so good at talking about how religion matters and, you know, and how you have this great line about how religion isn't done with us yet, you Mm -hmm. know, that you use all the time, right? So that people can think that we're done with religion, but religion isn't done with us, Mm -hmm. Um, which is exactly what you're talking about when you're giving this example about going after drag queens and going after trans kids, right? While people in power are able to do this. And so I want you to say a little bit more about, it's a lovely line, right? It's so snappy. I want like say it to people all the time and I kind of resist the urge. Um, But to say something about like how this encapsulates a lot of what you do with public scholarship actually in that one line, right? To think about um, how religion isn't done with us, whether we want to believe it is or not. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's funny. So uh, my co-host on the the podcast, Keeping It 101, I killed Joe's introduction to religion, Uh, Elise Morgenstein first. Um, Yeah, we we have giggled about this one a lot. Uh, And (laughs) that that line was kind of a one-off joke. You might be done with religion, but religion isn't done with you. It's just me riffing on Magnolia um, <laughs> <for> real. <laughs> Maybe done with the past, but that's not done with you. Uh, but yeah. a lot of yeah. what we try to do with the show and with the 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 book is show people that imagining religion in individual, personal, private terms didn't just happen. That it actually serves a larger political agenda. That works against minoritized people. But um, I'm giggling because we want to call the book Religion Isn't Done With You. And we're under contract with Beacon, which, you know, these are these are nice, wholesome Unitarians. And apparently in the, the pitch meeting, 
they're like, we love this idea, but this title is a little bit intimidating. It's like a little bit scary. Like, I don't, I don't like that. Like, what if I'm not religious anymore? I want to be done with religion. And we're like, right. It should scare you. You should be unsettled. Welcome to the title. Come on in. Because here's the thing. I, I, I truly, from the bottom of my heart, don't care if individual people are religious or not religious. I care, like, do mm-hmm. you think feeding children is good or bad? Should people have clean drinking water? I don't care why you think that. I care that you work to make that happen or you get in the way of that happening. I don't care where yeah. the impetus comes from. I care what you're doing. Uh, again, my, my Catholicism is showing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even though I would like to be done with it. It's so, ingrained. I just, this is the thing. You can't just wash it out. You don't wash out where you come from. You don't wash out which foods you want when you're sad. You don't wash out how, (laughs) like, how you respond when something bad happens. Or, like, motherfucker, when something gets lost, the amount of energy that I have to put into not praying to St. Anthony, in whomst I do not believe, like, (laughs) what is happening here? So, I mean, there, there are cute personal examples, and Elise will talk about a, a bunch of her experiences growing up Jewish as well, but the bigger picture here is that Americans think about religion on this granular, individual, very capitalist, very consumerist model. Meanwhile, specific folks' religions are making our laws. They are structuring our calendars. They are dictating when you vote. Like, they're dictating what kind of things you can shop for, increasingly dictating what can be in your libraries and your kids' school curricula. Mm-hmm. So I, again, do not care if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I truly do not. I do care that you know to look for things like, is my rural hospital run by Catholics? Because if it is, that put, puts constraints on what kind of care I can receive. And if I showed up there unconscious, I get no vote in what kind of care I'm going to receive. Someone else's religion is making the decisions for how my body can be cared for. And so, ah, it a little bit feels like, I guess it a little bit feels like Mythbusters, where you're thinking this is just politics, or you're thinking this is just economics, but let's get into this and see where, yes, it's history, but this history is still working on us. It's still working on our bodies. Right. You don't have to take this worldview seriously. Like, you do not have to be a dominionist to pay attention to Israeli politics and how that overlaps with white Christian nationalism and what's now the United States. Those are things that are shaping our world in very real ways. And if you're not thinking about them in religious terms, if you're doing a that's just politics as though there is a just politics in the U.S. absent of religion, then you're not seeing the whole picture mm-hmm. And it, frankly, becomes easier for folks in power whose religion is winning to take advantage of your ignorance and disinvestment. It is a way of fighting back. Well, I mean, I just think about, well, I think about the fact that my teenager has come home with multiple books now because her teachers no longer can have personal libraries. Yep right, at their school because I'm Mm -hmm. in Florida. And they are getting rid of their personal libraries. It's not that they can't have them. It's that they could be sued for the content that they have in their classes, right? Because we live in a state that is bananas right now um, that's very much working under a white Christian nationalist ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And just today decided um, that you also, the don't say gay bill that applied to elementary school now also applies through high school. Of course it does. Right? Um, And means that we've had a substitute teacher, for example, make a comment about gay as a slur, right? And these sorts of things that are happening, right? So this is the world that we live in and that we have to navigate. Yeah. It, right? It's not done with us, yeah. whether we want to be done with it or not. Um, and I think that that kind of the practicalness of that, I think, is really useful that you're pointing to there, too, that this is the water that we swim in. And so paying attention to that and understanding the power dynamics, which you're talking about, are so important, too, right? Yeah. Um, and the ability to fight back and to do that sort of thing um, yeah. is is worthwhile but also makes me kind of want to tear my hair out yes very much so (laughs) very much so i mean i was just trying to find a different way to say it but that's like the best i can do right is that um and this tells you how much i've bought into the individualist privatized like view (laughs) even though i know better is that i'm like why do i have to deal with this damn system right you know i don't want to opt out i don't want to opt out of this like how dare you make me deal with this but that's the way this works right it's structural right we we live in a society yeah i have to deal with other people like Oh, how dare, you know? Um, The other thing I'll say about it, too, is that I think particularly in early iterations of religious literacy, the emphasis was really on what you would expect from like a standard 101 level class, right? Lol, Joan of Arc was not uh, Noah's wife kind of thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the first thing you learn in religious class. Prof wrote no the relation. joke so many times. It was everywhere. <laughs> and like, and I, I get it because that's easy to grade. And I think that's an easy metric for literacy. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know yeah. that it does the work that we're hoping it will do. I, a place where I have been encouraged is watching folks build vocabulary and build like a theoretical toolkit to be able to Mm. diagnose what's happening around them and talk about it with other people who maybe wouldn't have this conversation otherwise. And that's really what we're trying to do with the book is, again, not tell you, I don't care if you know what the five pillars of Islam are. You could tell I just finished, again, being the Islamist debates for one hot year. And you could watch <laughs> my intro to Islam kids be so like confused that I wasn't quizzing them on the five pillars. Like, I don't care because you knowing facts about Islam doesn't actually do anything to disrupt Islamophobia. You being able to look at a system and go, oh, we have a history of doing this. And that seems not in keeping with what we say our values are as a country. That part I care about. So giving folks vocabulary, helping them recognize patterns, that's, that's where I see religious literacy doing the kind of disruptive political work that I, I hope it will continue to do. And if you can't name all five pillars of Islam off the top of your head, then you are like most Muslims. Not all Muslims are super into the five pillars and not all of them have five. And like it turns out a religion of two billion people has some different opinions about some stuff. So like, what if we look at instead how Islam is being used as a specter to haunt the Western world and justify truly unconscionable defense budgets while American children don't have enough to eat and we can't pay teachers a quarter of what they're worth and there is no paid parental leave in what is supposedly a developed country. 
So. To be clear, we wouldn't do any of those things, even if the defense budget were lower, but um, <laughs> still, you know. I mean, we, could, we might have leftovers for, like, a clean drinking water somewhere. We could fight that's every true. year. Maybe that's there true. could be Hunger Games is, about it. I don't know. It's a but... little utopian, but sure. Um, <laughs> if you can't I... <laughs> tell, John is our optimist, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that, that's what they say about me. Good. It takes the pressure Bright-eyed off Bright-eyed optimist. You can never stop talking about how great things are. Um, yeah, that's... That's my reputation. Uh, <laughs> Same season. Back to the Islam thing for a second. I want to. Sure. Um, I, I want to sort of follow up on on an element of the post nine eleven world and Islam and literacy and all that sort of thing. I, I remember. So there's been a couple times over the last like couple decades where I found myself in this like cultural moment, like smacking my head against the wall, being like, "Why?" One of them is when I realized very profoundly in the post 9-11 era that so when the Bush administration was trying to sell the Iraq war yeah, and they were using the Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were BFF mm-hmm. um, thing. And I was like, oh, no, no, <laughs> like, no, no, no. And if anybody knew anything about Islam, even the most basic stuff mm-hmm. would understand how absurd that is on the face, right? Then, you you know, we went to war in Vietnam because we were really afraid that they were going to align themselves with China, right? Because Vietnam and China have really close ties over thousands of years. So anyway, <laughs> America's super good at history. Super good. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, it just, it really occurred to me. I was like, oh, well, this is one of the reasons why knowing religion is important because part of this deception requires an ignorance about mm-hmm. like not all muslims are on the same let's all gang up and kill america page yeah, no um they have other pages other things going on they do have other pages so you know it's one of those that's one of those times where i was like oh boy we really need to work on like there's a reason why just the fundamentals and the basics of of religious studies are really really important right to um uh to to, to the rest of the world and the other one is like in this sort of new world of ubiquitous podcasts. Um, I find that people, like I want to think people have come somewhere in the last 20 years. And I find that people who are very educated, who I really respect, who I think are very bright about their topic, something about religion comes up and they just kind of guess and they kind of move on. And I'm like, (laughs) there are people you could talk to who know stuff. But here's the thing, right? A white Christian capitalist Protestant model of religion says what I know about religion is the truth about religion. So what else is there to know? Right, right, right. You're not but wrong. Even, even I would love it yeah. if people would talk to religious studies scholars. I think that would be super right. neat. But, <laughs> but I mean, again, as somebody who works on cults, you have not seen ire like people who have watched every documentary and listened to every podcast being told that like, no, Jonestown wasn't a suicide. You're like, you're wrong. I've done the research. I'm like, right. Well, we don't value education in this country. So what you think of as research is not what I think of as research. And we're using that word very differently. But you're saying yeah. some nasty things to me now. So I'm just blocking you. I do, yeah. Like the entitlement to declaring what religion is, is a big part of the problem. People, right. even in the academy, like I lost a close friend about this. People in the academy feel very convicted in their declarations of this is what religion is and what it means. Even in spaces where I'm thinking specifically of feminist spaces where embodied knowledge has been so important, taking your interlocutor seriously on their own terms is so important. 
unless you're doing Marxist history of women in Cuba. So why would you talk about religion? What does religion have to do with Cuba? It's an epiphenomenon. Women might say that they're having religious experiences, but what we really know that. Do we though, or did we just do a big epistemic, like epistemic violence on their face? Because it feels to mm. me like we just took a big epistemic dump on their faces. And I don't love that for us. Let's be better, please. And thank you. Well, and it's it's interesting to me too how um, w- we did a podcast last week with an expert on conspiracy theory. And mm. one of the things that he talked about that was so interesting is the like smugness mm-hmm. of conspiracy theory folks because of their entitled knowledge. And I feel like around religion, sometimes there's also this smugness, right? Mm. About like, I know what religion is and I'm telling you mm. and this is my personal – again, it's that personal belief thing, right? Yeah. Like, I know what it is. It's so personal. Protestant, man. It is, right? And you don't. Right. right? And and I don't know how often this happens because um, I work on weird stuff, right? Mm. Like, I'm going to own that. Kelly J. Baker works on weird stuff. It's not me. All of my Um, stuff is super normal. Yeah, it is. It's true. (laughs) Megan works on normal stuff. I'm the normalist. (laughs) It's weird how normal I am. Oh, she broke me. Anyway, and so I think I think it's I think it's fascinating how often I run into people who are just so quick to say, this is not religion, mm-hmm. right? that mm. Kelly, zombies can't be religion, mm-hmm. or the Klan can't be religion, <laughs> or, or, or my favorite is, like, doomsday believers can't be religion, Kelly. And I'm like... Dude, if we have a nuclear apocalypse, the only people who are making it out of here are the fucking Mormons. They're the only ones who are actually prepared. <laughs> I'm like, the preppers? You think the preppers aren't religion? How? But I think that it is that that impulse, right? Like that either people want to wipe it all away and say that it's something that's not religion. Religion is a guise for something, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. that it's a code for politics or it's a code or it's propaganda or there's something going on here that's more subterranean that you don't understand. Or it's the folks that are like, no, I know what this is and it's not what I'm seeing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's what makes it doing public scholarship in religion so challenging in some sort of way is that we're always kind of competing with these different notions of what religion is, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. um, yep. and as a religious studies scholar, I'm always like frustrated because people are like, I need you to define how you understand religion. And I'm like, or I could not, right? Like, I, and it's not to be coy. It's just that I don't want to end up in that conversation again. I would rather show how something works or affects or something like this. <laughs> I just, but you might have a different take on this, Megan. I mean, part of me is just tired. I, think. I mean, that's that's valid. <laughs> we, we all deserve many naps. That's very true. I am curious about why folks feel so comfortable defining religion in a way that they don't – they don't seem to struggle about, like, what is art – or what is literature? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Like, sure. What's architecture? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what is any kind of canon? In a scholar, in a scholarly place, we would always, we would define that until the cows come home. But out in the world, if somebody was like, oh, that building is architecture. People <laughs> built it. No one's going to fight with you and be like, nah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> Walk me through that one. Whereas if folks are doing something, like even in just the most basic way, if someone is doing something and what that person says is I'm doing religion, I am really curious about both the scholarly and the popular 
impulse to be like, nah. Mm. Yes. What what is happening there? Why do we want it to not be religion? Why do we want religion to go away so badly? And like some of that comes from personal trauma. Some of that again, I think, is deeply incentivized by the folks whose religion is winning. Some of it mm. is just like capitalist mind poisoning of I get to say what is and is not for me, and that gets to create the whole world. It's not not what it is to live with other humans. Uh, yeah, that is that is a frustrating and exhausting place. And I mean, the the way that we do it on the podcast is it's religion is what people do, right? Like we were talking about some of the the basics of religious studies, and if I were going to pick one one basic one like one hundred one level thing, it would be religion isn't belief, religion's practice. Because the conversations, particularly Americans want to have around religion, always start with belief, which obviously is a very Protestant impulse. They don't want to talk to me about that. But what we can say is, actually, I don't give a shit if people believe in QAnon, if they actually think this is what's happening or they're using it as an excuse. What I want to pay attention to is that senator has a QAnon mug behind him when he's doing fundraising. Did that make his numbers go up or down? When Mm. you post this on Facebook... Do you have more people come out? What is it doing out in the world, right? Right. And no, it's not limited to one specific kind of religion, right? QAnon is not a Christian movement or not just a Christian movement. Christians are involved. So are pagans. So are atheists. But it is trading on some very well-worn white Christian nationalist ways of thinking and being in the world. And if we are not using our history and our ethics and all of our political science Uh, as much as that's able to grapple with religious studies, then we're not fully understanding how we got here. And we're certainly not thinking about what other kind of systems we could be offering in place of the ones that are trying to take over our capital. I think the point about practice is such an important one, because I think that gets to the embodied piece. It gets to the ingrained piece. It gets to the the religion is not done with you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was just on the phone with my sister today and, you know, it's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, Jesus, right. Jesus. And so I'm not, so so what we should say here. Was it the middle sister? Yeah. It was not. It was was the younger sister that we were lamenting about things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like we have a running joke in my family that when I use this, it's prayer or swear, right? (laughs) So it's like embodied practice. Like it could be both, but it's funny to me how often it's still prayer, right? Like, it, and it's still very ritualized. It's very much embodied. It comes from like a brief stint in an evangelical background, but also living in the South, right? About how mm-hmm. this works, you know, um, and just the kind of ways that this stuff happens, mm-hmm. right? Now, if you straight up ask me, you know, do you believe, right, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? I'd be like, nah, man. Like, I'm good. I'm no, good. I'm good. We're cool. Like, yep. Yep. No problem there. Like we're gonna we're gonna both carry on yep. in how we carry on, right? Um, I don't bother but, him. He doesn't bother me. <laughs> me. Shalom. It works. It works the way it works. But I think the focus on ritual, right, mm-hmm. or what we're doing, really gets to that point um, in a way that the kind of Protestantized belief or the declaration of beliefs yeah. really kind of misses the point in a lot of ways. And and to be able to shift that conversation in a public scholarship way, I think is really useful to be like, what are people doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the kind of gear that they have, right? Like, what are they wearing, you know? Um, when we're talking about like 
crosses, right, that politicians are wearing when we're talking about what pens they have the on their suits. Yeah, I know. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking about, um, mm-hmm. you know, and how they're pairing it with other things to communicate, you know, a white Christian nationalist commitment and also a commitment to gun culture, right, that's really damaging and scary, you know, how those things pair together. Um, but yeah. also, like, this is hard stuff, right? Like these are complicated ideas. So communicating to that to a public too, like requires some skills and some effort here to be able to do that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so how do you do that, Megan? <laughs> oh, you know what's not? I just just pop What's out the secret? tell everybody they're secret wrong. Note. And you know what? People love to be told that they're wrong. Um, so it goes really Famously. smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what I try to do is work backwards from concrete examples, right? So people, most most people, most normal people, not that I spend a whole lot of time with normals, but most normal people are not like, hooray, <laughs> let's talk about the jurisprudence of free exercise in our nation's 200 plus year history. Um, but we we can look at places where like America says religion is protected. Cool. So mm-hmm. how comes Native folks can't make a religious argument to protect sacred lands, but some jabroni with fucking horns on claiming to be a shaman is entitled to special organic meals because of religion? What are we using that to do? What happens? Who counts? Who's protected? Who's in and who's out? Yeah. And those are the things that I see landing because that makes sense to people, right? You yep. can have big yep. arguments about, you know, disenfranchisement and and disestablishment. And sometimes people will even nod politely. But if you're looking at the example of a Muslim man who's executed by the state of Alabama who cannot have an imam with him because you have to have been hired by the state of Alabama to be present and all of the clergy who are hired in the state of Alabama are Christian. Was that on purpose or was that an oversight? It doesn't matter, but the practical effects are that man died without a representative of his religious community Mm. and the Supreme court let it happen. So how do we wrap our heads around being a country that says that it values religious freedom and do this shit? Because I am finding that even folks who don't care about the religion part of it very often care deeply about the freedom part of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the inconsistencies are, in my experience, a good way of inviting folks into the conversation. Like, did you know that? Isn't it interesting that? Mm-hmm. Just getting people yeah. curious. Because, again, they're, I think for, for so long, even folks trying to do public education around religion thought that they were swimming uphill because people didn't really care. And maybe that actually was the case before 9-11. Maybe it was. I'm not in a good position to to comment on that. I can say Mm -hmm. that the response to our podcast and the response to the public facing work that I've done suggests exactly the opposite. People are really hungry to know more things. And yeah, a lot of times that is just about kind of gathering facts and learning about people who are different from you. But even that I think is a step toward recognizing a common humanity that does some decent work, but pointing out the inconsistencies, stuff that people didn't even realize that they were getting wrong. If you can have a moment of curiosity of like startlement when particularly yeah. we, we try to 
make it at least a little bit entertaining. So when you, you laugh, you're caught <laughs> off guard. Uh, and that's, that's a moment to kind of slip in and say like, Hey, what else didn't you know? Or this actually matters because, so it's just, I think it's for me finding where people are genuinely wanting to know more and then talking to them like they're smart, but not experts. Because right. you can't be an expert in everything. You just can't, which is one of the reasons that like world religion classes make me fucking nuts because you can't specialize in everything. That's not what right. a specialty is. But, you know, if you can present information, if you can present the fact that it's okay to ask these questions and give them some tools to be able to think more and, and learn more on their own, then I, I am seeing that having really positive results. And I... I'm not, unlike John, I'm not particularly optimistic in a lot of these conversations. So being able to, to find spaces of like, oh, you know what? That shifted a little bit. I am seeing people talk differently about yeah. religion. I'm seeing people talk differently about, you know, Christian supremacy, white Christian nationalism. Still can't get people to include the white part of white Christian nationalism. I don't know why we decided we're <sighs> post-racial now. I want to set several... Well, Barack Obama was elected president, so it's all over. Oh, right. I forgot we yeah, fixed sure. racism. Thanks, John. We did. That's, that's a load off. <laughs> it's been Hooey. 15 years. Come on. It's been <laughs> over for a long time. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm so tired and angry and my stomach is upset. I, I, I just want to... So, like, so two things that you just said there made me think of a couple of things that um i notice similarly uh i've I, people have been receptive to and I, it makes me think that like a lot of it is people are well-meaning um and i don't like calling people out either but when you surprise them by something they're kind of like oh that's interesting so the yeah. two ones that really like stick out to me are are when well-meaning people talk about you know Christians and Muslims and people of any faith. And I'm like, but not every religion is a faith. And do we have to, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. faith isn't a part of every religion. No. And that drives me bonkers. But people are like, oh, why? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> and I think that's interesting. And the other one is like the one I, th I know that I'm sure drives all of us mad is the assumption that bad Christians are not real Christians yeah. or, <sighs> you know, and when liberals are like, Oh, these fake Christians yeah. and their, you know, their selfishness. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> for God's sake. Yeah. Let me, here's a, here's a small history book. <laughs> it just, just, it's, I'm it, sure there's something in that. Like just yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, the one that makes me lay on the floor, right? Like that I, just I mean, goes straight, like straight yeah. to like laying down on the floor, and people are like, "What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "No, just walk <laughs> over me, like just walk over me," because yeah. you like once again made me just mm -hmm. want to like. The Crusaders were fake Christians because they were mean. <laughs> yeah, so to other really Christians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whole thing's a fucking land grab uh yeah 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 i mean and i th yes i have done a lot of yelling about both of those things on twitter mm -hmm. and um <laughs> elsewhere uh so my approach there honestly is just to suggest as gently as is possible for someone like me which is to say not very to suggest that we're maybe having different conversations and i could see where investment in true, real, good Christianity would be very important from a confessional perspective, but from a historical perspective, from a sociological perspective, from the perspective where I got to live with these people, yeah. they're also doing yeah. Christianity and calling it something else doesn't help. Right. Like, right. It, it doesn't 
help the problem for you decide that they're not Christian. That that doesn't further the cause. It doesn't make anybody safer or freer or more likely to have access to clean drinking water and a safe place to sleep. So <laughs> I don't give a shit. Call it whatever you want. Like <laughs> No, but it's it's interesting, too, when you present this kind of thing publicly, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, as you're talking about the multiple conversations that are happening, because this happens with me when I do public scholarship on white Christian nationalism, is it never fails that I always have very well-meaning, very sweet, generally little old ladies, pre-pandemic, who would come up to me and just be like, I don't understand how you can say that the Klan is Christian because Jesus is about love. Crosses, right? Everywhere. Their crosses are everywhere. They really are. Everywhere. Jesus was a Klansman. I read about that in somebody's book. book. In somebody's book. book. Like somebody spent a lot of time in Klan literature to talk about like which I appreciate. Um, but it is it is one of those things where I have to explain to them like I get this. Like it's really important to you that you see your identity as separate from this. Mm -hmm. At the same time, like, we have to pay attention to this for our political, like, state and the state of democracy, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we can't kind of just let it go and dismiss them in some sort of way. Um, You know, and I think, I think it is the kind of complicated nature of public scholarship in that you do end up in these multiple conversations at one time. And it's, trying to negotiate those, right? Mm-hmm. And and the scholarly concerns that are so different than a lot of the confessional mm-hmm. attachments. Because like you, oftentimes I'm just like, I appreciate this and mm-hmm. I know that this matters to you, mm-hmm. but I don't have a dog in this race. Right. Like, I, which I think is the gentler version of what you said. <laughs> this is why I need you. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm just like, I just... I, it's not the same for me, right? Like I don't have a confessional identity that's wed to this in some sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. That's not that's not what's going on here. Um, but, you know, the audiences that we have are really complex audiences that mm-hmm. we're talking to you. And navigating that sometimes can be really difficult. And um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I just think that sometimes people are like, you just talk to the audience. And it's like, well, no, because we don't really know who our audience is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that is that is challenging. So all good public scholarship asks with this, starts with this question of who's my audience. And then the folly of public scholarship is the realization that you don't actually ever know. You can mean to speak to folks. And then you get everybody who kind of pops in from whatever avenue. And that's that's great mm. because again, sometimes you get unexpected conversation partners and you get to expand. I get to expand my own thinking and I love that. And then sometimes you have folks who want to come in and are interested in your time, but not your perspective. Right. So I am getting better, I think, uh, at realizing when folks have genuine questions, at which point I'm usually, depending on my energy levels, willing to engage with that and then when folks just want to yell and take up my time and I'm not available for that so trying to be better about monitoring those engagements <laughs> but I I do I again I do think a lot of these folks come in with personal investments that deserve to be taken seriously, even though we would kind of discount them in an academic conversation. Because frankly, like our personal investments are still there, even in an academic situation, we just pretend that they're not and pretending that they're not as part of how white supremacy again flourishes in the academy. Yeah. But 
I, I don't mind when people are wrong. I mind when they don't want to hear from folks who have dedicated their entire lives to studying the thing that they say that they care about. And that is an end of a conversation rather than the beginning of one. Right. I am super interested in the beginning of conversations. I'm not interested in being a dumping ground for whatever it is that you didn't work through with your therapist because I don't get paid like that. So people assume that public scholarship is really easy because when it's done well, it's clear and accessible. Here's the thing about writing. I don't know if you all have done any of that. No, I do no writing at all. No, no. Doing it well is actually really fucking hard. And the best writing... I'm writing this down. Is... <laughs> yeah. Well, here's... I'll, I'll give you my favorite take on this, which is from Kent Brittnall, whom I love. Kent says, mm-hmm. writing is hard. Writing is really hard. Writing is really fucking hard. And yeah. however you get it done is the right way. And that is yep. true, particularly for <laughs> academic work. But for public-facing stuff, you have to give a shit about whether people are going to read it. The Academy... Yeah builds yeah. you in an audience so you never have to care about it yep. you just use the right words and pet the right ponies and somebody has to look at your book yep so i think there is an impulse which i'm not going to psychoanalyze because it's not my area of expertise uh that resists clarity yes and resists frankly like engaging good writing not yes. that there's one kind of gr- good writing but if I am reading you and I want to keep reading you. That to me is good writing. And that is very often not my experience with many of our beloved colleagues in the academy. So I am I am shifting away, honestly, from this assumption that like everybody can or do, can or should do public scholarship. But what I will say is if it's something that you are thinking about and you are immediately frustrated with it being harder than you thought it might be then congratulations, that's a good first step. For me, I would say if someone wanted to do this work, I would far rather they think about it pedagogically than they they would in terms of research. Yes, you're building on your research, but done well, your teaching builds on your research. Teaching done well means that you are communicating information to an audience and that they're engaging and they want to know more. So if your piece, your written piece, your audio piece, your video piece teaches people in a way that makes them want to know more then it's working and if you can't do that then like there there are other places for you to pontificate amen amen yeah, no that's what i was gonna say too but i was like no more ritual for you Kelly. no with you yes um but i i think you're exactly right and that there's an assumed simplicity to it because of the way that it reads and that mm-hmm. it's engaging and it's accessible and that folks don't realize that when we do this kind of work, they don't see me banging my head on the mm-hmm. desk, trying to, <laughs> trying to get that writing in that way. 7,000 um, words is easier than 700. It just oh. is. It just oh, is. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, I mean, yes. it is. And yeah. every time I go to write something, I think about my mom who claims that she's going to read my writing internet. You should know this has been claiming she's going to read my writing since at least 2008 has only attempted a few times, but I still understand her as the reader that I want to reach. Right. Um, And so I always kind of focus on her as the person that I want to reach, which is I want her to be able to understand the things that I have going on. And my mom is a bright lady. She Uh just has better things to do with her time than keep up with what I write. (laughs) How could that be? How could that be? 
<laughs> Grandkids are more fun than my writing. That's is valid. what it yeah. turns into here. Yeah. Um, so, John, anything else for Megan? No, I was gonna. I was gonna ask Megan, having having done her podcast over this time. It's true. We um, just dropped our seventy fifth episode today. But I think you already asked. I think you already answered the question in what you just said, which was I was going to say we're we're two episodes in, um, and and what what you think we can contribute and how to this uh, to this project. But I, I think you basically laid out the the manifesto oh, okay. <laughs> already. Of, <laughs> I love that. I will say I'm I'm pretty sure that Kelly's up on this, but um, our kind of patron saint of academic podcasting is always Hannah McGregor. And any of the stuff that she's talked about in terms of public scholarship, but particularly the work that she did on Secret Feminist Agenda has been really, really mm. inspiring. So I recommend. All right, Megan, if people were going to find you, <laughs> if you want people to find you, <laughs> Nobody find me. <laughs> where should they find you? I mean, I'm I'm staying on Twitter until there's not a Twitter to stay on anymore. That's where so, I die. I mean, yeah. and it might be, frankly, that's, yeah, anyway, I was just reminiscing the other day because there was a whole thing going around about your biggest Twitter controversy. And the real the real answer is I don't remember because if it wasn't interesting to me, my brain immediately flushes it. And people <laughs> being angry at me is like not that interesting to me. But I did remember the Twitter thread that I did that resulted in the, the rainbow colored hate mail. It says, fuck you, bitch. For oh, real. I saw that today. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. I just really appreciated that they went and like individually colored the letters. So Oh, it's lovely. I mean, the graphic dedicated. design is really it's yeah. really well thought out. It was out. like it yeah. was I mean, as far as hate mail goes, I've never had like good. aesthetically pleasing hate I know. mail. I it's like Battlestar Galactica font. It's very <laughs> weird. Like I am not <laughs> Somebody put in some time. You can tell that they came over from they Facebook. Did. Anyway. Did. Uh but yeah. if people want to find me on the internet for now, I'm at mpgphd on Twitter. I also have a spatable account under the same name, but I haven't really been using it cuz I can't get a clear answer on where Chris Boozy is on sex workers. And uh, if there are no sex workers in your revolution, then I'm not going. So honestly, the real answer is I'm just waiting to see where black Twitter goes. And then I'm going to hope that they let me eavesdrop because that is where I learned the most. Uh -huh. the Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> if Twitter crashes and burns, I'm on medium. Uh, it's medium.com cults hyphen Inc. Because that's the new book. I'm not posting a whole lot, but I, it is my hope that once we get the podcast book finished in the next two weeks, or ta ha, lies, lies, <laughs> two months, inshallah. <laughs> Uh, God, can you imagine? Uh, Maybe two weeks from when we air that. When this it might be. Who can say? Yeah. We're gonna turn in the next couple of months. So once I shift to full time cults Inc., that I'm gonna try to post more uh, web blog length meditations while I'm working through some things a la Sarah Ahmed and what she did in living a feminist life Keisha Ali suggested that model to me and I am really interested in it so yeah. uh thinking of ongoing collaborations and conversations as part of the writing process rather than waiting for that to happen once something has been published so so Twitter for now medium maybe uh and that that should be enough okay <laughs> that's enough contact well, we appreciate you hanging out with us today. And thanks. Yeah, thanks. This is much more fun than work, right? This, this is work that that's is the, fun. Work that's that what is they fun. They say about the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that about y'all. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Megan. We appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, friends.